HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I'm Ethan Frisch for Heritage Radio Network on Tour here at the Good Food Mercantile in Brooklyn, New York. This coverage is supported in part by the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. And I am here with Naomi Mobed of Le Bon Mago, a beautiful line of uh, sauces, jams, chutneys, preserves. Did I, did I get that right? You nailed every category we have. That's perfect. Absolutely. So, so tell me the story. Uh, how did you start the company and, and how did you get to where you are today? I really started the company on a dare. So I came out of banking and I'd moved countries. I'd basically moved about four countries in a period of two years. And culinary and cuisine and doing something in the food industry was always a love. It was always something I wanted to do. But it was one of those dreams that sits on your bucket list and you think, oh, I'll do it eventually. I'll do it when, I'll do it when. I was boring friends and family ad nauseum. And they decided that either I had to do it or I was not going to be allowed to talk about a single recipe or a single culinary idea. So in order to stop basically boring everybody, I went to work and I started my own company. What was the first product that you made? The very first product was the tomato and white sultana chutney with fresh ginger and garam masala. So we actually launched the company with a trinity of products. The tomato was one. Then we have an eggplant or aubergine product. That was number two. And the third was a white pumpkin preserve. And we very carefully identified which ones we were going to start with. They were all family recipes. But we figured that the tomato was one that everyone would be able to recognize hug and you know identify what to do with because all of our spice all of our uh products have you know spices that some people may not be that familiar with so they love it when they try it but you know some of it requires a little bit more uh customer training education how to use it, how do we use it traditionally, but hey, that's, you know, how do we use it in more modern ways in terms of how we eat today? You you have a line of uh, products that are fairly savory in a category that's usually seen as sweet. How did you know that, that there was space for that? How did you know that people were going to be interested in that? And how did you position yourself to 
to educate consumers about uh, about a new style of eating this 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 type of a, a chutney or preserve. So, basically, we, you know, what we did, we didn't work on whether it was going to be sweet or savory. You know, when you are when you come from the Middle East, Africa, South Asia, all of our cuisines are based on a balance of different elements, mainly sweet, savory, a little bit of heat, or acid. And that's organic, it's, in, it's intrinsic to the cuisines themselves. So we didn't go about trying to make something savory versus sweet. We really drew on the original recipes that we had and how they had morphed over the years as my family had traveled through those countries and based on the availability of ingredients. And what I also realized was when I went to stores to determine what was out there and where we could kind of fit, you know, the niche, I realized that a lot of what we were making was immediately categorized as ethnic food. So it meant that it was only in a certain aisle or it was only in a certain type of store. Most of these products were produced in a very low cost way with low ingredients and they were not representative of how we ate at home. You know, we do eat achars with cheese at home. We put it into a cheese toast or we eat it traditionally or, you know, we fuse an achar together with a hummus and drizzle it on that. So, you know, it's, the product line has really been grown out of our experience as a family and that's what we wanted to bring to everybody's table. And how did you move your product line away from that quote-unquote ethnic aisle into, into, I guess, the mainstream? Well, partly it was, you know, a function of price points. The quality of our ingredients um, is very high. So typically our jars are smaller, are smaller than what is traditionally found in most ethnic grocery stores in that category. The other thing is I just refused to sell to a grocery store that was going to classify us as ethnic because that is a word that means everything and nothing. You can be French and still be ethnic. So I didn't like those overtones of being categorized um, you know, by simply because I happen to use human in something or I happen to use, I don't like those definitions. So our products break those boundaries and so do we. And that's how we, that's how we operate. Uh, could you give us some uh, examples of some of the things that you make, some of the your more popular products and maybe some of the ones that don't get the love that, that you think they deserve? Sure. One of the ones that is really um, an amazing product, it's a white pumpkin and almond, toasted almond preserve. We use no pectin in the preserve and the white pumpkin is actually a Sicilian gourd called a cucuzza. You don't see, and in, in, in India or Pakistan, we call it a dudi. And you don't see that in a preserve in a very common way, certainly here or for that matter, even in Europe. Um, most, uh, most dudi preserves are crafted at home, made at home and consumed. And this is one that has a lot of floral notes. Um, and we use in an, a wonderful Madagascar and vanilla, single source and um, it tastes like baklava in a jar. <coughs> it can be a very divisive product. 
because it is sweet. So um, that's, and often over here in the US, most people associate pumpkin with winter rather than summer. <coughs> Pardon me. Even though the kikutsa is a spring and summer vegetable. So it was some of these nuances that we had to work through to be able to sell to the market, you know? And really start telling people that pumpkins are all year round. You don't have to eat them just at Thanksgiving or Christmas. Um, it seems like there would be a fair amount of customer education, which is something that a lot of entrepreneurs struggle with. You have an idea for a product that's, you know, in many cases quite sophisticated and subtle and draws on a, a cultural backstory that most consumers are not aware of. How have you done that? How have you, how have you taught your customers about things like the white pumpkin? Demo, 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 and more demos. So people have to try it to love it. So we spend a lot of time and a lot of money on making sure that we have faces and people in the store helping to um, you know, give samples out. We also support all of our merchants with sample jars. So our cheesemongers um, are our first line of attack, so to speak, and um, making sure that they're aware of the products, they know what goes into them. We're very transparent about our ingredients. So I think they embrace that. It helps them with pairings and then helps them to you know, guide our customers. What's your process for coming up with a new a new flavor, a new combination. How do you how do you iterate? How do you come up with new ideas? Well, you know, when we started, it's very different than how we would look at it today. When we started, we were guided more by inspiration rather than strategy. Today, as much as I hate to say it, it's guided by some of the brutal realities of producing product and producing product on a larger scale rather than simply what it's going to be in a pot in your, on your kitchen stove. So um, all of them are based on traditional recipes from my family and you know, family, friends. So we have a pipeline through to work through it's a question of what we can schedule to release at a given time, how we can source the spices, that is a big one for us. If we don't find the right spices or the right dried fruit, um, you know, we won't release the product. For example, right now we, were, we are releasing, we've released two products this year. Uh, it's a carrot and dried fruit conserve with coriander and jaggery. And we have a sour cherry with cocoa, orange flower, and mahlep in it. It's sour cherry and pomegranate. We sat on those products for over a year and a half to two years because we could not find the right sour cherry, for instance, or the texture in the carrot was not right. We couldn't find the right julienne that we needed and so on. So we're not in a rush. I won't take out a product unless, to be brutally honest, it meets my mother's expectations of it. You know, because she's our worst critic.
what were some of the, the challenges that you faced in the very early days and how have those challenges changed now that you're more established? You mean apart from my mother as a credit? Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, the early challenges was, I think, understanding that food production is not the same as culinary. So when you have a culinary mindset, there's a lot of reorientation that you have to go through to understand that, again, what you can make and sell on a broader level is not necessarily how you would cook in your kitchen for family and friends. So that was, that was a big learning curve. I also came out of you know, banking, so I was a banker before I got here. So there was a lot to learn about CPG and learning about the food industry in general, how buyers think and buy, what is going to attract them to the product. You can have the best product in the world, but if you're unable to sell it um, as a business, you're not going to be able to survive and grow. And ultimately, that's what it's about, you know. What advice uh, would you have for an aspiring entrepreneur, an early stage entrepreneur, somebody who's trying to figure out how to take uh, this vision, maybe an early stage prototype of a product to market? Be prepared to be knocked around a lot. Uh, be prepared to know that all of your assumptions are going to be invalidated. And that's a good thing. You do want to be in a situation where if you're if all of your assumptions are going to be correct then you're in a very safe place and if you're in the artisan food space that's not where you want to be artisans and crafters are all about taking those chances but make sure that you have a game plan to know how your funding is going to evolve because ultimately it's wonderful to have the romance of the food and the allure, the textures, the colors. We all love the creative side of it. That's why we're here, ultimately. But if you don't get the belts and braces right, your food safety plan, your financing, or at least have a long-term plan for that, rather than simply saying, oh, I'll go to the bank and get a loan. Loans have to be paid back. But look at, you know, getting, make sure that you have the the belts and braces for your business in place uh, and and our last question of today's interview what's the what are some of the more surprising applications you've seen for your products how have people used them in ways that that you didn't expect so far I think what is unexpected for me is how people are able to take them and they get so the joy that they get out of using them has been unexpected. Only because you get people talking about making their hamburger for dinner and telling me that the tomato chutney completely transformed the way that it tasted and now they have that case sitting in their fridge all the time because they can't do without it. That for me 
is continually surprising, not because the products are not good, but as a family, we get so used to eating like this. You know, we have four or five achars, pickles, preserves sitting at our table at any given time. So you take it for granted and you enjoy the taste and you appreciate it, but it's not as surprising as when somebody else expresses it. So that's really, for me, the, the joy that I, I get. That's great. Uh, let's uh, leave our listeners with uh, um, just let us know where people can find your product, how they can find you, social media, your website. Absolutely. Our website is www.lebonmagot.com. Social media at uh, Le Bon Mago, very simple. Um, we actually do have a list of our retailers online. It's not exhaustive because we can never keep up because we are a growing business. But folks can um, order online. And if they use our email, info at lebonmago.com, it comes directly to me. So they'll get it from the horse's mouth. That's great. Naomi, thank you so much for joining us. This is Heritage Radio Network on tour at the Good Food Mercantile in Brooklyn. I'm Ethan Frisch. Thank you. Ethan, thank you so much. Bon appétit.